psychopaths, porn stars, conspiracy theorists, was intimately involved in 9/11. Internet trolls, avant-garde musicians, new age psychic spies. And these are my stories as a psychic soldier. Genetically modified giant super pigs. Just a few of the topics that are interesting to writer and journalist and radio host John Ronson. He's what's happening on Relate this week. I'm Tamara Stanners, and today on Relate, a feature interview with John Ronson. He is the brilliant author, radio host, screenwriter, gonzo journalist, an all-around fascinating guy that our producer, Andy Shepard, had the absolute pleasure, am I right, to sit down and chat with? He's he's just the kind of guy you want to hang out with, right? He's just super interesting. Oh, I was so jealous of you. Uh, well, and I, you know, I mean, I've, I've been a big fan of his work for a long time. I mean, The Psychopath Test is one of my favorite books. It's so crazy. It dives into the, you know, strange world of of sociopaths and psychopaths and, you know, trying to identify who among us is a psychopath. And it turns out it's not so easy. No kidding. And then there's the men who stare at goats. Yeah. So may, you, there's the book and and the movie well, with uh, George both. Clooney. Was, yeah, they're both awesome. So good because it's that story of the real life U.S. military program where they had tried to use paranormal techniques like psychic spying for warfare. Yeah, these guys would sit there staring at goats trying to stop their hearts. Like, <laughs> Amazing. Just bizarre. And, as, you know, true story. And then there's So You've Been Publicly Shamed. So this is an important book uh, that John Ronson wrote about online shaming, and we're going to get into that in a little bit more depth uh, later on. I mean, there's so much to discover in his work. But it seems that there's this common theme, uh, and it's the fringe of society, you know, outsiders. He's really empathetic to people who don't fit, you know, the mainstream. And in fact, he's developed relationships with a lot of these people, like with Alex Jones, the famous conspiracy theorist guy. But I wanted to start the interview by getting a sense of how he came to the fringe in the first place. When I was a kid in school growing up in Cardiff in Wales, I I was kind of the outsider. Like I, I was sort of pushed pushed to the edges of the playground um and so I kind of naturally gravitated towards like the edges of society when I was starting out like at the very beginning of my career when I was just like sort of young and ambitious and wanting to make it I suppose part of me wanted to sort of go to the fringes of society to kind of maybe make fun of people and then I'd be more popular uh, <laughs> but that didn't last long um, luckily because that's a, that's not how, how somebody should live their life quite soon I, I realized that people who were demonized or ridiculed quite often had really interesting perspectives and finding the kind of humanity and demonized people on the fringes taught you more about them and it taught you more about us so very quickly I I guess I sort of changed my perspective about people like that and became much more empathetic so he arrives at this insight that the freaks and the square pigs and the trolls of the world are actually a window into humanity yeah, I mean, his approach was not just to look at them through a window, but to actually, you know, jump through the window and join them. 
I started off by always inserting myself in the stories, uh, mainly because all the people I was a fan of back back when I started out did that. People like Hunter S. Thompson and P.J. O'Rourke and I guess Tom Wolfe. That kind of, it was called the new journalism at the time. And I loved it. And I thought those people were just so mysterious and exciting. I think it's good for a number of reasons. I think it's good because it's it's quite easy for me. It's like a natural narrative for me. Like I get on a train and then I get off the train and then I go and meet somebody and then that person tells me to go somewhere else. It's like, um, and then I kind of get out of my depth and it was just came very naturally as, as a way of of constructing a narrative. But as the years progressed, I think there was another good reason for inserting myself in in my stories, which was sort of turning the lens on myself and my own sort of foibles and frailties and, you know, grey areas and mistakes and so on. If, If you're the kind of writer who sort of treats yourself as this kind of perfect person and you a kind of representative of of um, righteous society, then that cuts off a lot of possibilities for learning. So I always like to think of myself as a more kind of unreliable and flawed narrator, especially if I'm writing about unreliable and flawed people. It means that it's a much more kind of empathetic relationship. So you know, it's not not a totally objective approach, but I think it's really brave. No kidding. Especially the way that he exposes his own flaws. You know, it's very it's a very vulnerable approach, and it really does help you, you know, the listener or the reader or the watcher to kind of empathize with the characters in his stories. Now I kind of get that, but I have a really difficult time understanding how you empathize with the trolls, like the people who are so hurtful. Yeah, I mean, these guys are basically being online jerks, right? right? But I think uh, part of that is just exploring the the slippery slope, I guess, that, that it's possible for any of us to behave that way under the right conditions. Even though on Twitter we all like to see ourselves as nonconformists, when we all kind of get together to to tear somebody down, it's a it's conformity. It's like, you know, we're it's like we're defining the boundaries of normality by ripping apart somebody on the outside and that's such a it's such a kind of conformist and authoritarian thing to do I I was listening to Zadie Smith doing an interview the other day Zadie Smith's another novelist and short story writer she said something that that I've always thought but I never sort of um, heard it put this way before she said you know why why are we surprised when like academics plagiarise or, you know, when it turns out that a politician's had an affair. Why does that always surprise us? Like, we know that people are a mess. It's like, because we're all a mess. Like, we've all got secrets. We've all got flaws. And I thought that was such a kind of smart way of putting it, because it's it's true. But on social media, we, like, pretend to ourselves that that's not true. We pretend to ourselves that, like, one person's slight mistake is evidence of the entirety of their person. Like, one bad tweet. Um, is like a clue to that person's, you know, overall evil. And what that is, it's it's judgmentalism instead of curiosity. And the older I get, the more I realise that, you know, it's much better to be curious and to reserve judgment than to 
be instantly judgmental. Like the most woke people, part of wokeness right now in society is to is to be judgmental and to sort of know all about that person's badness without hearing any evidence about that person. Um, that's the kind of fashionable way to be these days. And I, and I just, I just don't think it's the right way to be. It is so true and really quite shocking where you see it online all the time. People telegraphing their righteousness. Yeah. And not recognizing their own flaws. Uh, so I, I don't know about you, but I like I tend to stay out of those, you know, online diatribes and pylons just because I've seen uh, how awful it can get. But it's precisely these nasty, sometimes cruel places that John Ronson wants to explore. So at this point in the interview, I wanted to get a sense of what was behind his willingness to take on, you know, all these controversial stories and people and ideas, especially since it often gets him into trouble. I mean, like his personal safety is sometimes at risk. I feel this kind of ob- obsessive need to follow a story um, to where the story ends. And on several occasions, that's taken me into dangerous situations. Um, kind of jihad training camps or uh, uh, Ku Klux Klan compounds or getting kind of chased by the henchmen of globalist clubs like the Bilderberg Group or so on, um, like kind of properly dangerous areas. But but I don't enjoy that. Like I take no, I have no adrenaline rush from being on, with the Ku Klux Klan or anything like that. Uh, I, I consider that to be a kind of um, terrible thing that, that I'm sort of forced to do to, to follow the story. Um, I, I kind of feel like... A, this need to follow the story wherever it takes me. So it's curiosity um, is, is what drives me. I, I, I don't think I could write a book where I wasn't genuinely curious. And this creates a problem, I think, for me, because the older I get and the more books I write, the more mysteries I feel I've solved. So each time I write a book, I can't go back to that area. I can't go back to... I, I don't feel I can go back to mental health because the psych, cause I wrote the psychopath test, so I feel like I, I understand that. Um, I can't go back to conspiracies because I wrote them. I can't go back to social media because I wrote So You've Been Publicly Shamed. So, so each time I have an adventure, it cuts off uh, like a whole area of research for me cause, because if, if there's no curiosity there, if there's no mystery, then I can't do it. I'll give you an example. I've, um, I, I've known... The conspiracy theorist Alex Jones for like 20 years. The evidence is clear the military industrial complex was intimately involved in 9 11. The commission is a complete fraud. We're losing our freedom. And I, I w- Alex was recently publicly diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And I thought, that's so interesting. Maybe I should write something about narcissistic personality disorder and, and Alex and my relationship with Alex. And, uh, you know, particularly now that Alex is kind of close friends with Trump. And I thought maybe it'd be a way into writing about Trump. And then I just sort of felt this kind of ennui because I thought, oh, you know, if I'm going to write something about narcissistic personality disorder, I, I, like, I know how this is going to pan out. It's going to become a sort of ambiguous story about, you know, who are the real narcissists? Is it the ones who've been diagnosed with the disorder or is it the ones who do the diagnosing? And, and, then, and then I thought, 
God, I know this. I can't write this. Like, I'd love to write it, but I can't because I know it. Uh, it's so it's like it's the not knowing that that's like the wind behind the sails. So one of the big things that came up in our discussion was uh, consequences. You know how the internet sometimes feels like a consequence-free zone. Yeah, like I can say whatever I want. I can watch whatever I want. I can buy whatever I want. Well, this is where his curiosity was leading him. First in his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and then uh, in his new podcast, it's called The Butterfly Effect. Two things happened when I was writing So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which which kind of led me into, into doing The Butterfly Effect. One was I was writing about this woman called Justine Sacco, who tweeted just before getting on a plane to Cape Town she tweeted going to Africa hope I don't get AIDS just kidding I'm white and then she got on the plane and while she was asleep on the plane you know her life just changed forever because Twitter took over anyway I was interviewing the guy who kind of started the onslaught against Justine Sacco, this guy called, um, he was a Gawker journalist called Sam Biddle. And I asked him how it felt and he said it felt delicious. And then he said, but I'm sure she's fine now. And I thought that's so interesting. Like we don't want to think about consequences when we're on the internet. Um, We don't like thinking about consequences. We want to hurt people but not feel bad about it. So that stayed with me. And the other thing that stayed with me was was I was meeting this porn woman uh, called Princess Donna, and um, I was in my hotel room. I was staying at the uh, Chateau Marmont, you know, sort of fancy hotel in Los Angeles. And the um, receptionist said, your guest is waiting for you downstairs. So I went downstairs and everybody in the lobby was wearing, you know, basically what I'm wearing right now, which is kind of dull, inconspicuous colours, <laughs> except for Princess Donna, who looked like this kind of mad peacock um were kind of bright colors and and I looked as I walked towards her I looked over at the receptionist and he was looking at her and I don't think anybody knew that he was being looked at as he was looking at her and the look on his face was one of like total contempt and it made me think like like I don't, I don't know if he recognized her as a porn star or not but I think he, he assumed that she was some she was some form of sex worker, and it made me think: Wow, people are only comfortable with porn people when they're on their computers, not when they're in their vicinity. And that reminded me of Sam Biddle, you know, tearing apart Justin Sacco, and then thinking, "I'm sure she's fine now." So I wanted to do something about consequences. So I started to think: like with with contempt comes incuriousness. Whoa. That is a heavy line. With contempt comes incuriousness. I know. I mean, it, it makes you want to check your contempt or your dismissal of people at the door because it stops you from understanding so much about people. Like, so I became curious about porn people. Like, what, what are their concerns? So I started reading blogs written by porn people. And what I discovered very quickly was that a lot of them were concerned about one very specific thing, um, which was a man called Fabian, um, who was a Brussels tech entrepreneur who who invented... He actually didn't invent Pornhub, but he's, he popularised Pornhub. 
And this huge amount of money went from the porn community in the San Fernando Valley through to Fabian's pocket. Fabian gave the world readily available free porn. Fabian never pirated porn himself, but what he did was give give the world the ability to pirate porn. And the world did do that. So suddenly all the, porn became free for everybody, um, whatever age they were, you could just watch free porn. And all of this is very recent. This is like, like 2010. Um, so I wondered, like, what are the consequences of that? Like, if I follow consequence through to consequence, where will it take me? And the whole of the series, The Butterfly Effect, is me doing that. So the starting point is Fabian giving the world free porn. And everything that happens in this series is a consequence of that. Um, but it goes to really far out places. To give you one example, by the end of episode two, tracing consequence through to consequence, a man in Norway is setting fire to his stamp collection. Um, that's the thing I love most about this series, that it just, it, it takes you out and out and out. Like somebody said to me, um, you know, it needs to start with porn and end at NASA. Um, and I, I kind of think we've we've sort of achieved that. It doesn't end at NASA, but it does end with people setting fire to stamp collections. So you can hear John Ronson's new podcast, The Butterfly Effect. It's on audible.com. And uh, he was also involved in writing the new feature film, Okja, which is uh, that's the one about the genetically modified giant super pigs that you mentioned at the top of the show. And that one's on Netflix. Thank you so much for that interview, Andy. Oh, it was really my pleasure. I want to do another one because you just want to hang out with this guy and just hear his perspective. He's so interesting. Take me next time. <laughs> okay, I will. Speaking of meeting John Ronson live, or at least seeing him live, if any of what you just heard tweaked your curiosity about him, John is one of the featured speakers at the upcoming Relate Live New York, which happens October 23rd through 25th. So if you want to get more of those fascinating ideas in person, you can sign up for the conference. Podcast listeners get a $200 discount when they sign up at relate.zendesk.com slash live and use the promo code podcast. Lots of great speakers, including Damon John from Shark Tank, Caroline Bechtel from Pinterest, Dory Rosenberg from Facebook, and many other thought leaders who can help you take your customer service to new heights. Again, that's Relate Live New York, October 23rd through 25th. Visit relate.zendesk.com slash live and enter the promo code podcast. That's it for Relate this week. Next week, we'll dive into your relationship with your phone. Are you addicted to it? Are you obsessed by it? Could you not live without it? Digital detox expert Martin Talks will be here to help you draw the line with your technology so you can stay productive and healthy and human. You can subscribe to Relate on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
In the meantime, for more articles on connecting to your customers in deeper ways, visit relate.zendesk.com. And if you want to explore technology built to improve your customer interactions, head over to zendesk.com for a free trial. I'm Tamara Stanners. Talk to you soon. <laughs>